This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Democracy's fundamental fragility has never seemed as apparent as it is now. Politics exploding into private lives, insurrection at the Capitol, a social and economic contract coming apart at the seams. The challenges metastasize when you consider one of the most important truths about a diverse democracy, like the United States. Different races, creeds, beliefs, values, not bound together by blood or identity, but theoretically by an idea. So when belief in in that idea falters, can a diverse democracy hold together? Well, Yasha Munk says firmly, yes. And that in order to do so, Americans have to remember and recapture the common joys that humanize us to each other. Munk is a professor of international affairs at Johns Hopkins University and a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. His new book is The Great Experiment, Why Diverse Democracies Fall Apart and How They Can Endure. Yasha Munk, welcome to On Point. Thank you so much, Magna. I should also say that uh, Yasha is a contributing editor at The Atlantic and founder of the online publication Persuasion. Now, Jack Beatty, On Point News Analyst, is with us as well from Hanover, New Hampshire. Hello there, Jack. Hello, Magna. Hello, Yasha. So, first of all, uh, Yasha, I'm wondering if we can start out with actually the more um, dire uh, uh, look or or sense you have of of diverse uh, democracies, because you do write in the book, in the opening pages of the book, that the history of diverse societies is grim. Why? Well, when you look at the history of humanity and some of the most brutal and violent episodes within it, it has often pitted uh, one ethnic, religious, uh, racial group against another when you think of some of the deepest injustices in human history, like slavery, when you think of some of the most violent episodes, from wars to civil wars to forms of ethnic cleansing to genocide, uh, they were often animate, animated by this uh, clash between different groups. And so, therefore, do you have concerns that the same inevitability might befall the United States? So I don't think it's an inevitability, Um, But yes, I think what we're trying to do in the United States today, and in many other democracies around the world, by the way, is historically unprecedented. And that is to take these deeply ethnically and religiously diverse societies to sustain democratic institutions within them and to actually treat all of their members as equal. Uh, And I think you need to appreciate the difficulty of that in order to have a sense of how we can proceed and in order to actually also paradoxically have a little bit of optimism about our chance to succeed uh, Mm. in order to be able to recognize that we have actually made real progress in the last decades and are doing uh, much better than many other societies in in the history of the world. Yeah, so we'll talk about your optimism uh, definitely in in a moment here. But I, I, I do wonder about in 2022... Uh, if we can actually say that what the United States is trying to to achieve as a nation, as a diverse democracy, is unprecedented. That might have been true uh, in the founding of the country or even of the first century of, of, of this country's history. But as I'm sure you know, uh, reviewers of your book have pointed out that uh, – 
that, uh, you know, there are thriving multi-ethnic democracies out there, naming Canada, New Zealand, even Ghana, Botswana, different types of, of multi-ethnic democracies that are functioning and seemingly at this point in time, seemingly functioning uh, at least with less strife uh, and conflict than the United States. Uh, well, look, uh, you can always compare the United States to other countries and say this country might be do- doing a little bit better in this respect or in that respect. But I think the idea that we should all uh, be looking to New Zealand or Botswana as the obvious solution to everything uh, uh, is is a little bit naive. Um, I've also heard people say that Germany, where I'm from, or the Netherlands, uh, have solved all of the problems because of their different uh, political institutions. The same reviewer claimed that. Uh, well, uh, you know, this book was just published there, and strangely enough, uh, nobody there said, we have no problems in our society at all. What are you talking about? Everything here is solved. So I did go and look at different societies when I was researching this book because I thought, hey, perhaps we can just, you know, go and uh, emulate uh, their institutions and uh, copy what they're doing and uh, implement that here in the United States. And that's the way forward. And that would have been a fun way to, of writing the book. I could have spent some time in interesting places around the world and uh, written, you know, uh, nice stories about what they're doing. Saying we should just always do the same. Uh, I just don't think that uh, uh, there are examples of societies that really uh, uh, have peace and equality in the country to a very substantial extent, uh, which we can easily emulate. And I think if somebody says that all the United States has to do is to uh, copy Botswana and New Zealand, uh, that's a little bit unrealistic. Mm, uh, agreed, actually. But uh, in addition, it, it perhaps is a little unrealistic to say that any society could achieve um, a sort of steady state for a long period of time uh, of, of peace, prosperity, and, and mutual respect amongst its citizens. I just do wonder about humanity um, itself being uh, incapable of achieving that. But I, but I hear your I hear your concerns about what are the forces that might pull together Together, a diverse democracy. But just just to check, on, on the flip side, um, there are examples of how extreme homogeneity in a society doesn't necessarily lead to democracy, uh, but rather um, dictatorship or authoritarianism as well. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, but, but I do think it's important to have as a starting point an understanding of the powerful forces of what Jonathan Hyde Calls mm. groupishness. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so you know, I tell the story in the book of of Henry Teifel, um, a social psychologist who lost much of his family in the Holocaust and was trying to understand uh, in the fifties and sixties what it is that makes groups so powerful, what it is that makes it so easy for human beings to form groups and then to discriminate in favor of the in group and against anybody who doesn't belong to it. And he had a really interesting starting point for this. He said, "Look." I'm going to create groups that are so silly, that are so pointless, uh, that the members uh, don't uh, really favor each other. And then I can slowly ladle on more attributes to understand at what point they become so motivating, at what point they take on this kind of force that we saw in the most horrible episodes of human history, that we saw in the Holocaust at other moments uh, of motivating uh, this terrible injustice towards outsiders. Mm. So he got these kids into the lab and he showed them a sheet of paper with about 150 dots and he said, um, have a guess how many dots are on this sheet of paper. And so some kids guessed, you know, 125 and some kids guessed 175. And he said, okay, great, I'm going to put you into a group of underestimators and overestimators and you play these uh, games against each other. Um, well, it turns out that to his surprise, 
the members of a group of underestimators immediately started to discriminate against the members of a group of overestimators. Mm -hmm. And the members of a group of overestimators immediately started to discriminate against the groups of uh, underestimators. So uh, this, 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 this instinct to favor the in-group is incredibly versatile and incredibly strong. Um, I teach at a, at a, at a wonderful uh, campus and university that is incredibly diverse. Um, and my students think of themselves as some of the most tolerant people uh, in the history of the world. And, and in some ways, perhaps they are. But when I asked them uh, whether a hot dog is a sandwich and had them debate that question, uh, uh, afterwards, the members of a group who thought that a hot dog is a sandwich started in a similar game to the one that Teifel said his kids uh, to discriminate against the people who thought that a hot dog is not a sandwich. So this is a really, really uh, powerful uh, a motivator and a mechanism. And, and here's another point that worries me, which is that, uh, you know, as somebody who, who loves democracy and who's uh, been warning uh, about some of the mm -hmm. uh, attacks on democracy for a long time, uh, my first instinct was to say, well, perhaps democratic institutions can solve this problem. And I think in certain ways, when we think about uh, uh, all aspects of a democracy, including uh, the grant of individual rights to people, uh, that, that might be the case. But there's also a powerful way in which democratic institutions exacerbate conflict. Because uh, if we're living in a, in a monarchy or, or in an empire, uh, you know, you don't have any political power and I don't have any political power. We both have to uh, trust the monarch. And so if your group has more kids or there's more immigrants who, who look like you than they look like me, it doesn't immediately change my political standing or my political situation. Uh, in a democracy, that's different because a democracy is always a search for majorities. And so uh, if uh, I happen to come from a group that's in the majority and that has historically held the power, and suddenly I see, oh, there's this other group uh, that is growing as a proportion of a population and perhaps will be in the majority one, one day, um, uh, it undermines my political standing. It, 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 it might make me more likely to be paranoid about the impact of those kind of demographic changes. And we're obviously seeing uh, forms of that kind of demographic panic uh, uh, being really powerful and really dangerous uh, in the United States and other democracies around the world today. Mm. So I do think we need to uh, take seriously the reasons why building diverse democracies uh, is really hard and why uh, absolutely there have been terrible crimes and injustices in human history um, that, that weren't along the lines of these ethnic and, and religious tensions, but many times the worst crimes in human history did pit one ethnic and religious group against another, and um, and we need to recognize that to 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 deal with with a challenge we're facing. Yeah, Jack Beatty, I appreciate you listening along here. We've got about a minute before the first break, and I promise I'll definitely uh, let you pick up your thought after the break. But what are you hearing so far in what Yasha Munk says? Well, maybe uh, we could hear from him after from from you, Yasha, after the break. Why it is? Well, you. In what may be the understatement of the year, you write, <laughs> optimism does not come easily at this difficult historical juncture. Indeed, perhaps uh, in, in what comes, you can tell us why, in the face of what seems mounting discouragements and uh, the spread of extremism, uh, not just from elites, but among the people and uh, other evidences just yesterday of minority rule. I'm thinking of the Supreme Court decision on abortion. Perhaps you could ex help, help us understand why you are feeling optimistic 
at this moment about the American future. Mm. Well, Jack, hang on here, and Yasha Munk, stand by as well. We will pick up with that thought when we come back. Yasha Munk's new book is The Great Experiment, Why Diverse Democracies Fall Apart and How They Can Endure. And we've got an excerpt of it, by the way, at onpointradio.org. We'll be right back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform that lets you find candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint. That's Indeed.com onpoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Today, Yasha Munk joins us. He's a professor of international affairs at Johns Hopkins University, founder of the online publication Persuasion, and author of the new book called The Great Experiment, Why Diverse Democracies Fall Apart and How They Can Endure. Jack Beattie's with us as well. He's On Point's news analyst. And, and I have to say, uh, Yasha, your, your book and conversation is generating a lot of activity on social media here. It's pretty pessimistic. <laughs> Brando Flex says it's done. Everyone thinks they're 100% right all the time, and the other party is 100% wrong all the time. The USA is in its death rattle. Jamie Bensler says, better journalism? Stop making everything about groups and sides and focus on the individual as a means of creating unity. Uh, Alexander Sherrod says, it's over. There is no glue. There never was. It was a facade. And Mike Parwana says, we're supposed to find common ground with people who still support a seditionist after uh, conviction reveals it was literally sedition. Well, how's that good for democracy? So lots of pessimism out there, Yasha. And yet, uh, as Jack asks, um, explain to us the reasons why you find reasons for optimism in your uh, or, or hope for America's democratic future. Uh, sure. So, look, I, I, I'm very concerned about the political level. I'm very concerned about what's going on in Congress. I'm very concerned about the attacks on American democracy. My last book, The People versus Democracy, argued before that was cool, when that was a, a really outlier position, that the rise of authoritarian populists like Donald Trump in the United States, like Narendra Modi in India, like Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, is a very real threat. Uh, for democratic institutions. And uh, as we know uh, from uh, January 6th, and as we know uh, uh, when you look at the opinion polls, uh, uh, that threat is far from over. Uh, we could have Donald Trump return to office in 2024, or uh, perhaps uh, he or his, an ally of his in 2028. Uh, and I think the, the attempt to undermine the core institutions of American democracy is only going to be uh, more extreme at that point than it was in the past. So I, I, I agree uh, with the level of political threat we're facing. Um, but the topic of, of this book, of a great experiment, really is uh, where we are at in this really fraught multi-century journey to build deeply ethnically and religiously diverse democracies uh, that, that hold together and that treat the citizens as equals. Um, and, and on that point, it really does help to have historical perspective and to have comparative perspective looking at other countries as well. Um, so let me just start with with, with one data point. Um, uh, you know, uh, within uh, not just living memory, but 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 within the lifetimes of everybody on this panel, 
um, a majority of Americans thought that interracial marriage uh, was immoral, uh, that it was wrong for, for example, a white and a black American to marry each other. Uh, that figure is now down to the single digits. And we know that this is not just uh, something people tell pollsters. Uh, it's a real change in behavior. It used to be that about uh, one in 33 newborns in, in the United States is multiracial. Uh, that is now up to uh, about one, one in seven. Uh, so that is a very obvious change in, in the heart of society. I'll, I'll tell you another uh, reason to be optimistic about the actual changes that we're seeing in, in the heart of society. Um, I hear a lot of pessimism today about uh, the integration and the prospects of immigrants. So on the far right, uh, you often hear explicitly or sometimes implied uh, that immigrants today from El Salvador and Vietnam and, and Nigeria aren't going to be able to succeed in the way that Italian and Irish immigrants did a century ago uh, because they're supposedly uh, in some way inferior, perhaps culturally inferior, perhaps even uh, genetically inferior. Uh, now, a lot of the mainstream and, and a lot of the left uh, rightly uh, reject that attribution of blame as, as preposterous. Uh, but they often uh, echo a similar kind of pessimism. Uh, many of my friends and colleagues say uh, that immigrants today uh, will not be able to succeed um, because uh, not being white, they face such discrimination and such injustice uh, that there's simply no path forward for them in the United States. Now, there is real discrimination and there is real racism and injustice, and that's something we have to take seriously and fight against. Uh, but the best studies on the topic suggest uh, that this pessimism uh, is also uh, misplaced and overstated. Uh, actually, what we're seeing is, uh, for example, that the child and the grandchild uh, of immigrants uh, are much more likely to rise the socioeconomic ranks than the child and the grandchild of similarly situated uh, a non-immigrant yeah. uh, uh, Americans. Yeah, Yasha, can I just step in here for a second because I, I, I'm having a hard time restraining myself. I have very strong opinions about what you're you're saying just now, um, and mostly that what you're saying about how people on the on the far right and and the left how they see immigrants. It's a classic case of people not asking the the people the very folks they're talking about what they feel. I mean, I am the child of immigrants. I I can I have very strong opinions about this and. Uh, what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say here that, in fact, I think you're making another point, which is we're really good at talking about each other in the, in the United States, but not listening to each other. Because anyone who spoke, actually talked to a first-generation immigrant or that uh, immigrant's children or grandchildren would easily and almost instantaneously learn what you were talking about is evidenced in the, in the studies, that, that you're that you're quoting now that uh, integration does happen linguistic integration happens I would say in the first uh, in the with the children of immigrants it doesn't have to wait right. to even the grandchildren's uh, uh, generation but but let me just turn that back to Jack here for a second because um, I do want to sort of get the um, Jack's view on these two really critical aspects um, that form um, Yasha Munk's, um, some of his reasons to be more optimistic. That when we, I don't want to say set politics aside, but look under the under the hood of, of who and what America is right now, we do see long, on the long arc of history, quite significant uh, and positive changes, Jack. And so why not continue to, to hope and presume and work for those changes uh, to, to persist? Well, we want to hope whose grounds are true. And that and my problem, Yasha, with your book is I do feel there's a kind of willful optimism. You you cite uh, 
feelings about interracial marriage and its more its frequency today very encouraging at the same time if we're looking just in that sphere of marriage you know as well as i do that polls show that from 30 40 years ago there was practically republicans or democrats didn't conservatives or liberals didn't uh, object to marrying people of the other party <laughs> it's extraordinarily high today you you know uh, if you went back into even the 1980s you wouldn't find anything like what larry bartels in a very important survey of opinion found he found most republicans in a January 2020 survey agreed that the traditional American way of life is disappearing so fast that, quote, a time will come when patriotic Americans have to take the law into their own hands. I submit that you would not have found such widespread predisposition toward violence and even insurrection among Republicans 40 years ago. So I, I, I understand there are people like hot dogs and they like uh, barbecues and so on, and that's great. But these are, <laughs> that, doesn't, that doesn't cut it, it seems to me, next to these, these uh, signs of genuine, uh, uh, effective polarization. In other words, I don't like you, and I'm going to use the power of government to strike at you. So, so I, look, I, I, again, I think that's right. I think it's important for to talk about the kind of uh, changes we've had in the United States and the kind of polarization we have. So um, uh, in the debate, uh, people often imply that uh, the main problem here is our failure to deal with ethnic and religious diversity in the country. And uh, as I pointed out in the first part of a conversation when you were all uh, being skeptical of my pessimism, um, <laughs> that is a very difficult thing to, to get right. It is a very, very difficult thing uh, for, us, for us to do. Um, I think on that count, we really have made progress. And so uh, it is remarkable, for example, that in the 1960s, Americans would have strongly objected to their children uh, marrying somebody of a different race. And today, most Americans say, I'm perfectly fine with my child marrying somebody of a different race. Now, you're right that the polarization that is really worrying in our country today is the partisan and the political polarization. It is now a lot of Democrats saying, I would be really upset if my child married a Republican. And a lot of Republicans saying, I would be really upset if my child married a Democrat. And that is obviously um, uh, because... Uh, of uh, not just the polarization in, in our politics, but also uh, the extremism of, of the current Republican Party. So, so again, I agree with you that the stakes are very high, but it is absolutely possible for any democracy to fail, and it is especially possible for this really fractious, diverse, complicated American democracy to fail. But that makes it all the more important to look a little bit under the hood at the actual developments in society. And these two questions are actually related. You know, I've been looking in detail at the recent French election. And what I found striking there is that you had the, the deeply fatalistic and pessimistic uh, narrative of Marine Le Pen and Eric Zemmour, these far-right candidates. And then from the heart of society, you had a different kind of fatalism, saying, yes, it's true that our society is failing. It's true that we're not managing to integrate uh, immigrants. And, um, you know, that's our fault and not their fault. But, you know, in, in, in a way, Le Pen and Zimbabwe are right. That, those are the conditions that actually make it easier for these dangerous authoritarian populists, for these dangerous far-right figures to succeed. So the connection between my optimism and my pessimism is that I think we actually need to uh, convince our fellow citizens 
But in the heart of society, a lot of things are going right. And that we are able to create the vision of a democracy in which most of us would actually be excited to live, of a society that we would uh, enjoy being compatriots in to be able to hold off the danger on the political level, to be able to hold off the danger from far-right authoritarian populists who absolutely do present a, a, a clear and present threat to the survival of the American Republic. So, you know, Jack, far be it from me to uh, disagree with you because I think we we might see things from different points of view, but I never really fully disagree with you. But this is one of those moments of maybe a differing point of view here because you use the word the phrase willful optimism. I, I see this as something a little bit different. So so Jack and, and Yasha, can we just take it out of the the realm of the intellectual and the scholarly for a minute? I just want to place, place it firmly in, in the real and specifically the real story of, of you, Yasha Munk, because um, you are an American, a naturalized American citizen, right? You became a U.S. citizen in 2017. And I want to point that out because my family is full of immigrants, full of immigrants. And um, I actually prefer calling them Americans by choice. And I think mm. that's very, very important mm. because I have yet to meet a naturalized U.S. citizen who came to this country saying, I really want to be a Democrat <laughs> or I'm, I'm coming to the United States because I really want to be a Republican. No, they come here because they really want to be Americans. And in fact, naturalized U.S. citizens uh, have a kind of uh, zeal which I think uh, U.S.-born citizens often don't have. You know, it's almost the zeal, it's the zeal of the convert. And it's, I don't say that in the pejorative. I say that with great admiration because it's, it's a zeal that comes from something other than politics. It's a zeal that comes from this idea that we talked about, that what, American, what America symbolizes and what it could be. And I wonder if that is something that informs some your your optimism or 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 reason why you you insist that we look beyond the in, in not beyond but try to grapple with the in, the political divides we have now and seek something that binds us closer together um so i think that 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 is a part of it i am proud to be a new mint american i was very proud in the spring of 2017 in particular uh, to uh, stand uh, uh, at the JFK Presidential Library, not not too far from where you're recording, and uh, to swear to defend the Constitution and the laws of the United States against all enemies, uh, foreign and domestic. Um, uh, but I think my optimism does go a little bit beyond that because I've had some of these same debates in France, in Germany, in the Netherlands, in different places uh, around Europe, some of which I have less of a, a personal connection to. So for me, perhaps it also comes from uh, a sense of history, including a sense of personal history. Um, uh, you know, in my family, um, for the last three or so generations, um, uh, people have been at the receiving end of uh, some of the most flagrant injustices in, in, in history. Um, uh, my great-grandparents uh, vanished in, in the Holocaust. My grandparents lost most of their family and were displaced. My parents were thrown out of the native country, out of Poland, um, uh, uh, because they were Jewish in, in, in 1968. And so I have, a, a, I think, a very clear sense of what it looks like when uh, diverse societies go very deeply wrong, uh, when those within them that, that are weakest, that are... Uh, 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 most in disadvantage, uh, really feel the brunt of uh, the oppression of a state or the tyranny of the 
majority. Mm. Um, uh, and that shouldn't make us complacent about injustices uh, today, which are, which are very real. Uh, but I do think that it puts a little bit in perspective uh, the current situation of most diverse democracies around the world, of countries like the United States or of France or of Germany today, which undoubtedly have deep problems that we need to solve and deep injustices that we should be angry about, uh, but which uh, also have uh, real strengths, which also actually do sustain some amount of real common feeling. And perhaps that is something that uh, immigrants, perhaps particularly immigrants from uh, countries that are not democratic, uh, from countries uh, that are not as affluent as the United States, um, can can recognize and 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 appreciate, um, because uh, it's the contrast to so many other societies in the world uh, that reminds us of uh, what I think is one of the deepest truths of politics: that the best kind of society that you're going to be able to create is always going to have some deep problems with it. Uh, this is why uh, the idea that we can simply look at uh, Botswana or New Zealand or for that matter at uh, Denmark or Canada uh, and emulate that uh, never seems that convincing to me because you take the best society in the world, whichever one you think that is, uh, and there's always going to be deep problems with it that, that its citizens complain about. Um, but the worst kinds of societies in the history of the world are just really terrifyingly bad and, and, and violent um, and, and a lot of the task of politics is to keep making improvements, um, keep trying to, to, to make our societies better, but, but, but also to keep trying to avoid falling into the abyss that human history has so often con consisted in. And so I think it's, it's also that historical and that comparative perspective. Uh, and frankly, the perspective of our own history. The, the perspective of taking seriously what the United States looked like 200 or 100 mm -hmm. or 50 years ago, which allows us to look at today and say, we have deep problems, but you know what? Uh, there's also some reasons for, for optimism and the progress we've made. Yeah. Jack, uh, once again, I'm afraid we're running right up to the break here, but I wanted to hear your first your responses uh, to both what I said and Yasha said, and we'll pick it up after the break as well. Well, I, I, I really like your Americans by choice. That's, uh, yes, yes. To be born in it, you take so much of it for granted and you don't see it whole and you don't see it vividly enough. And I think that's a very important uh, point. We all need to look at America with the fresh eyes of our newest citizens. As long as those fresh eyes are also honest eyes <laughs> as well. Yes. Um, but we're going to come back from the break and talk more about... Uh, what uh, Yasha Munk, what you talk about as, as ways to uh, help this diverse democracy endure. So we'll be right back. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. Dig. 
This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is the part of the show where I tell you what's coming up later in the week. On Friday, we're going to be talking about the science of headaches because there's research out there that finds that more than half of the world's population, so we're talking about, what, three and a half billion people, have experienced recurring headaches over just the past year. So does that sound familiar to you? I mean... 50-50% chance that it does. Tell us about how headaches are having an impact uh, on your everyday life. How do you deal with them? Have you been able to find effective treatment? We want to hear from you at 617-353-0683. That's 617-353-0683. Today, Jack Beatty joins us. He's On Point's news analyst. And Yasha Munk is with us as well. His latest book is The Great Experiment, Why Diverse Democracies Fall Apart and How They Can Endure. And, and Yasha and Jack, we've been talking a lot about sort of the forces that can pull a diverse democracy apart. Uh, I want to now at least give some air and voice to what you think can pull a diverse democracy democracy together. And, and Yasha, you've written a lot, not just in this book, but elsewhere, about this concept of civic patriotism. So what is it and why could it help pull American democracy together? Yeah. So look, as a German Jew, um, the idea of patriotism does not come naturally to me. And I certainly understand uh, the big dangers uh, that uh, an exclusive form of nationalism uh, can pose in the world. Um, at the same time, looking, for example, at the moment at Ukraine, uh, I'm also deeply aware of how inspirational a force, a love of country, rightly understood, uh, can be. We're seeing millions of people in that country voluntarily risking their lives to defend uh, Ukraine against this uh, terrible invasion uh, ordered by Vladimir Putin. Um, and so I think that we should recognize uh, the positive as well as the uh, dangerous potential of patriotism. I think of it as a kind of half-domesticated animal. If we lead, let the worst kinds of people monopolize that resource and stoke this beast until it runs wild, it can become incredibly dangerous. Uh, but uh, we can also make it useful uh, for us. Now, uh, there have historically been various kinds of conceptions of how you should think about patriotism or nationalism. One is a kind of ethnic nationalism, right? Mm. That's the idea that what really defines a country is common descent. And to be truly uh, French or German or American, you have to have grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents who already lived in the country or who belong to some majority ethnic group. Uh, that I obviously uh, reject. Yeah. Uh, I don't see why that should uh, found, uh, why should, that should have moral importance. And most citizens reject that. Most uh, Americans and also most Germans and French people today recognize that many of their true compatriots have roots in uh, all kinds of parts of, of the world. Um, so that leaves uh, civic patriotism, which has historically been the answer that philosophers and intellectuals who defend patriotism have given. And it's something that's important and personal to me. I was saying earlier that one of the reasons why I was uh, proud to become an American was, was my love of the United States Constitution and the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights uh, and the important uh, liberties that gives us, even if we have to keep fighting for them. Um, uh, I also worry for that civic patriotism in itself uh, can be uh, insufficient. Um, mm. And one of the reasons for that is simply that most people don't care that much about politics. But when they say they love the country, they're not thinking of the Constitution and they probably can't tell us what's in the uh, Eighth Amendment. Uh, and so actually, uh, what most people are talking about when they say they love the country um, is that, that they do love uh, its everyday, dynamic, uh, ever-changing culture, that they do love uh, the city where they grew up, 
that they love uh, the sounds and the smells of uh, the country, that they like, or at least they're used to, the kind of cultural scripts which govern the way that we uh, interact each other. And yes, the, the silly aspects that they identify with certain celebrities or certain sports people uh, and so on and so forth. Um, and, and that uh, everyday cultural patriotism it reflects in a natural way the uh, great cultural and ethnic diversity of a country and is, as, as you were implying earlier, Magna, shared uh, by immigrants to a very, very uh, large extent. And so I think this is an important resource uh, that we should appreciate alongside the civic patriotism as one of the bases of what today, mm. in fact, uh, does uh, uh, unite Americans when we're looking away from Congress and looking away from cable news and looking away from all of the partisan rank. Okay. Jack, what do you think about that? I wish I felt, uh, well, I, I understand it's true for some people. I, I wish I felt it was broadly true. I wish that sort of cultural uh, affinities and uh, uh, attachments to state uh, rituals and so on would see us through. But I'm, I, I just think that that doesn't take the measure of, of, the, of the depth, the extremity of our current crisis. You know, you, you have a kind of civic, you have a kind of civics textbook optimism about things in one chapter where you say, here's the role the state should play. And you say, one of the things that's great about our current, you know, our, our setup is regular elections. Think of that. That means people can't hold on to power. That's, we, we should be comfortable. We don't have regular elections anymore. The Republican Party won't lose the, lex- the next, next election. They wouldn't lose the other one. Uh, you, you take comfort in instant. You say, oh, we have individual rights, and that's a great prop. And you, and you say, uh, 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 you know, uh, thankfully, a third institutional innovation goes a long way to giving all citizens the ability to lead lives in according with, accordance with their values. And here you say, the recognition that there's a sphere of life in which everybody should be able to do what they like without having to worry about anyone else's opinion. A sphere of life post-Roe? I mean, that's to say there isn't a sphere of life. You have no privacy in, in the post, in the structure, you know, in the in the Supreme Court, in the America, the Supreme Court is about to give us this individual rights have been set aside. So I I I I think you sort of have these um, attachments to the you know, uh, as I say, civic textbook feeling about America that just don't correspond to the current America. I really think looking around the world a little bit, Jack, what what would do you good? Um, uh, I don't doubt uh, the uh, uh, extent of the political fights w- we are in. Um, and uh, again, I was one of the first to warn about the danger uh, to democracy uh, from authoritarian populism. Back when uh, a lot of uh, political scientists and a lot of uh, mainstream commentators were saying that those concerns were silly, that of course we could assume that American democracy would forever be stable. Um, so, so I share many of these concerns. But I think it is worth looking at uh, the current state of our rights, for example, uh, compared to so many parts of the world, compared to uh, uh, our own past. Um, and so it's important to, 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 to hold these two things in, in measure. I hear a, a lot of time, for example, the argument uh, that uh, gay rights have really taken a huge step backward uh, in the United States. I think that that is just uh, deeply ahistorical when you remember the fact, for example, uh, that Ellen DeGeneres lost her talk show in the 1990s because she openly stated 
uh, that she was lesbian. If you remember, uh, don't ask and tell. If you remember the fact that uh, the idea of having gay marriage be the law of the land uh, was fanciful, was unthinkable in, in, in the 1990s. So the history of uh, achieving rights is uh, very often two steps forward and, and one step back. And that has been the case uh, throughout history. And we are absolutely at a moment when they are particularly embattled. And that is something that we should recognize and we need uh, the resolve uh, to, to, to fight for those rights. Um, but to depict the United States today as some kind of uh, dystopia, which doesn't uh, recognize uh, individual rights at all, uh, which implies that uh, uh, all of that is just uh, an illusion, uh, just doesn't take seriously enough what life is like in, in Turkey, what is life is like in Venezuela, what life is like in North Korea, uh, what life is like in so many other countries mm. around the world, or for that matter, what life was like in the United States 150 years ago. Uh, I, I hear what you're saying, Yasha, um, particularly about the two steps forward, one step back, although that draft opinion uh, from Justice Alito seems to indicate um, more than one step back or the desire. But but here, there's, there's several things that have been said that re- resonate with me very, very deeply. First of all is this idea of civic patriotism. Because I think every American should be profoundly civically patriotic. I, I stand by my belief that um, that in the Constitution, in the Declaration of Independence, uh, in, in the founding documents of this country, there is an idea worth fighting for, worth improving on and fighting for. Um, perhaps the Constitution itself needs to be updated in order for it to be fully resonant with the, with the nation that it, uh, it governs today. But but it makes real sense to me. And in fact, just the other day, I was in um, uh, this presentation where it was a forum and, and people were asking me questions about h- how I identify myself. And I said, point blank, I am a very, very proud American for these reasons. And oddly, in that audience, there was only like two or three people in the back who, who applauded because apparently in some parts of this country, being a proud American uh, isn't really au fait anymore. But I think that's because... There's a problem with this belief that we can form a cultural patriotism. And the problem is the very real war that's going on for the hearts and minds of Americans, but it's being waged by the economic and political elite of this country. Okay, because there's one version of that economic and political elite that says, yeah, there is a cultural patriotism, but it belongs to me and my group and people who look like me and believe what I do. And those, and that's the limited group to which I want to extend the rights that come along with that cultural patriotism. There's another group that says, oh, no, the any idea of any common cultural bonds is oppressive. So therefore, let's not say that there's a common American culture which, w- that we can bring each other together around. This war uh, and then advanced through the media and social media is really tearing Americans apart. And, and it's, the, it's one of the main things that I think makes me unable to be as optimistic as you are, Yasha, in terms of how we can come together. So, so, so I agree uh, absolutely with, with that worry and your description of, of that war. Um, you know, we talked very briefly earlier about language, which I think is a great case of this. So you have people on the far right who really worry uh, about uh, the way in which supposedly immigrants aren't learning the language and the fact that English will one day no longer be the lingua franca, the, the common kit 
of the United States. And when you have some of my academic colleagues and others writing fashionable books saying perhaps we shouldn't have a common language, perhaps it's great if immigrants uh, from Central America or from Asia no longer learn English and America will just be a federation of different linguistic communities and that's perfectly fine. Uh, when you look at the actual sociological reality, um, both of these points just become moot because there's a sociological model which describes language acquisition in the United States and, by the way, in many other countries extremely well. And that's that often there are first-generation immigrants, especially if they come from poorer countries and are, have had less educational opportunity in their childhood, who don't fully learn the language over the course of uh, their life in the United States. Um, their children uh, do acquire uh, English fluency and uh, nearly all of them prefer speaking English when they're among their siblings, among their cousins, among other people with a similar background of migration. And by the third generation, by the generation of the grandchildren, uh, actually English wins such a complete victory, and this is in some ways a melancholic thing, um, that uh, only about 1% of third generation immigrants still speak the language of origin at all. So this shows, I think, that there is actually a depth of cultural integration uh, that we sometimes underestimate. Um, and I find that a lot of uh, uh, Americans tell me, what do we have in common? You know, uh, this country actually is so completely d disjointed, mm. uh, we don't share anything. Uh, but as somebody who is an immigrant to this country and who's lived in England and in Germany and in Italy, I have to tell you, you're all very, very, very American. <laughs> um, and, and, and that's in some ways a positive thing. Yeah. Now, what does worry me a little bit is uh, absolutely the, the core of this right-wing populism, which says there's a real America and there's a not real America, and we need to save the real America from everybody else. It's people like Michael Anton, who went on to uh, be a senior advisor in the Trump White House, worrying about, I quote, the ceaseless importation of third world foreigners, end quote, and the way in which that's supposedly going to destroy the republic. That is uh, deeply uh, yeah. pernicious. Yeah. Um, I also worry for a little bit about uh, the way in which many of my friends and colleagues talk about the country. I worry about the fact that uh, being an immigrant to the United States uh, who came here for graduate school, um, I live in a very ethnically and religiously diverse community, but I barely know anybody who didn't go to a good college. I right. barely know anybody who doesn't have a postgraduate degree. And when I listen to many of my friends talk about the rest of the country, it is often with real snobbery and disdain. Mm -hmm. and, and that's something that concerns me. Yeah. Uh, so, Jack, we have two minutes left, and I just want to just continue in a, a little more with what with Yasha was saying, because fundamentally, um, the way I see it, democracies uh, uh, hold to, diverse democracies hold together because there's this belief in the larger, uh, the things that that can form common ground in the larger tribe, the tribe of of America. Let's put it that way. But when uh, when that democracy doesn't provide some critical things, that sense of belonging, that sense of security within that larger tribe. It makes perfect sense to me that tribal identities break down into something smaller and more dangerous. And I think that's the real danger here, right? Because there have been decades-long attacks on the very institutions in this country that should help provide that sense of belonging and that sense of security. And unless we do something about that, I, I do wonder about uh, how we can achieve what Yasha Munk is talking about with that civic and cultural patriotism. Yes, there needs to be a sort of, uh, what, uh, social provision, a, a safety net, a, a margin of security to, to make us feel 
safe, to make us feel, uh, to, make, to make it possible for what Lincoln called the better angels of our nature to assert themselves. I think we have to say in today's America, the better angels are tardy. They haven't shown up. Uh, maybe they will, uh, but it, it looks like, uh, uh, you know, historians compare this period to the 1850s, and the country did fall apart. We have had experience with that. It isn't as if that's unknown. Uh, so uh, I, 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 you know, what is, what is, we've quoted him before on this uh, program, Antonio Gramsci, pessimists of the intellect, optimists of the will. Uh, Yasha, you are an optimist of the will. Mm. Well, Jack Beatty, On Point News Analyst. Jack, thank you, as always. Thank you. And Yasha Munk, the new book is The Great Experiment, Why Diverse Democracies Fall Apart and How They Can Endure. Go to our website, onpointradio.org, and at least read an excerpt of it. It is a terrific book and very thought-provoking. So, Yasha Munk, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Magna. Thank you, Jack. I'm Magna Chakrabarty. This is On Point.